Welcome to this week's episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll review treatment for secondary prevention of venous thromboembolism in children, a therapeutic strategy for relapsed or refractory B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia, ivocitinib monotherapy in patients with newly diagnosed AML with mutations in the isocitrate dehydrogenase 1 gene, and survival outcomes of chronic lymphocytic leukemia patients treated with ibrutinib. First up, we'll examine the blood article entitled Safety of Dabagatran Etexalate for the Secondary Prevention of Venous Thromboembolism in Children by Brandau et al. Venous thromboembolism, or VTE, in children can be difficult to treat successfully and may be associated with considerable morbidity and mortality. In addition, for children who have had a history of VTE, preventing further episodes of thromboembolism poses a particular challenge. There are a number of known risk factors for recurrent VTE in children, including the presence of central venous access devices, infection, cancer, congenital heart disease, or thrombophilia. Treatment may also be affected by the presence of comorbidities, the failure to monitor VTE adequately to inform treatment decisions, and limited vascular access, which may impact treatment choice. According to Brandau and colleagues, the current standard of care medications have limitations which complicate their use in children, including the need for parental administration of low molecular weight heparins and the need for close monitoring of laboratory tests for oral vitamin K antagonists. Previous studies in adults have shown that the oral thrombin inhibitor dabigatrin was safe and effective in preventing recurrent VTE, However, since the hemostatic system in infants and children is profoundly different than in adults, it is important to conduct safety and efficacy studies of such agents in children. Previous phase two studies of dabigatrin in children were encouraging, suggesting a similar safety and pharmacokinetic or pharmacodynamic profile to those seen in adults. The authors conducted an open-label, single-arm, phase 3 trial of dabigatrin for extended secondary thromboprophylaxis in 203 children with a history of venous thromboembolism, or VTE. The study population consisted of two groups of patients ranging in age from 3 months to 18 years. The first group were children with a history of provoked VTE, that is, a VTE associated with a clinical trigger, such as central venous catheterization or acute illness or hospitalization, in whom one or more prothrombotic risk factors persisted following completion of a conventional therapeutic course of anticoagulation. The second group was comprised of children with recurrent, unprovoked VTE. Overall, 18% of the 203 children were being treated for recurrent VTE, provoked or unprovoked, at study entry, and 30% had been diagnosed with inherited protein C or S deficiencies or the antiphospholipid syndrome. Nearly half of the patients had already participated in a phase 2b-3 
randomized open-label trial of dabigatrin versus standard-of-care anticoagulant for three months following an acute VTE. The preceding course of therapy was low-molecular-weight heparin in 75% of these children. The dose of dabigatrin was adjusted for age and body weight. The median duration of dabigatrin administration was approximately eight months. The investigators observed primary endpoints of clinically relevant bleeding in 2.5% and recurrent VTE in only 1% with no deaths. The authors note that these rates are lower than in historical control studies, which used low molecular weight heparin in similar populations of children. The authors further examined the rate of post-thrombotic syndrome, also known as chronic venous insufficiency, in these children at 6 and 12 months post-enrollment, and found an incidence of only 1%. Overall, the authors conclude that dabigatrin treatment was associated with a low frequency of both recurrent VTE or clinically relevant bleeding and that dabigatrin is safe for extended VTE treatment and does not require routine laboratory monitoring. Going forward, it will be important to assess the role of oral thrombin antagonists such as dabigatrin in hospitalized children with an increased risk of VTE, investigate the safety of reversing agents, and to prioritize the development of pediatric formulations in dabigatrin. Next, we'll discuss a blood article entitled A Cellular Antidote to Specifically Deplete Anti-CD19 Chimeric Antigen Receptor Positive Cells by Ruella and colleagues from the University of Pennsylvania. Anti-CD19 Chimeric Antigen Receptor T-cells, or CAR-T19, are a standard therapeutic strategy for relapsed or refractory B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia, referred to as BALL, and also for some adult patients with relapsed or refractory lymphomas. The CAR-T19 cells are manufactured from the patient's own T lymphocytes by inserting a chimeric T cell receptor that recognizes the CD19 antigen found on normal and malignant B cells. Ruella recently reported an extraordinary case of a pediatric BALL patient treated with CAR-T19 cells, whose relapse blasts were found to aberrantly express CAR-19, the transgene intended for the T cells, apparently due to unintentional transduction of a single leukemic cell with the CAR-19 lentivirus during CAR-T19 cell manufacturing. This unique circumstance led to in-cis binding between the CAR-19 and the CD19 antigen on the cell surface of the leukemic cells, masking the CD19 epitope and thereby blocking the ability of the CAR-T19 cells used for therapy to recognize and kill the leukemia cells. The authors hypothesized that the chimeric T-cell receptor in these leukemic cells could itself be a good target for another type of CAR T-cell that specifically recognized and killed cells expressing the original chimeric receptor against CD19. When T-cells were equipped with the new receptor, the authors demonstrated that they could recognize and destroy the leukemic cells that accidentally expressed the CD19 CAR T-cell receptor. Thus, the authors created a CAR T-cell that could target and eliminate another CAR T-cell by recognizing its unique chimeric receptor. 
Furthermore, since all CAR T-cell receptors are absent from healthy tissues, such a treatment would be highly selective for malignant cells. The authors went on to describe a second potential use of CAR T-cells that recognize the CD19 chimeric receptor, namely the ability to deplete the original CAR T19 cells in patients who were likely cured of their B-cell malignancy but who had developed chronic B-cell deficiency due to ongoing killing of normal B-cells. This syndrome has been reported in a number of patients and is associated with hypogamma globulinemia and an increased potential for infections. In preclinical studies, the CAR T-cells directed against the CD19 chimeric receptor could specifically deplete CAR19 T-cells and therefore could potentially eliminate the B-cell deficiency and resulting hypogamma globulinemia. Key points of this study are as follows. Aberrant expression of CAR19 chimeric receptors in BALL blasts can be used as the target for CAR T cells targeting the anti-CAR19 chimeric antigen receptor itself. And anti-CAR19 T cells have the potential ability to remove CAR T19 cells after they are no longer needed. Now let's examine data described in the blood article entitled Ivocidinib Induces Deep Durable Remissions in Patients with Newly Diagnosed IDH1 Mutant Acute Myeloid Leukemia by Robaz et al. Treatments for acute myeloid leukemia, or AML, are selected based on the patient's performance status, medical comorbidities, and age, as well as biological features of the leukemia that predict response to treatment. Until now, the standard of care treatment strategy has included a choice between intensive or less intensive induction regimens. Patients who go into remission can then be offered consolidation chemotherapy or possibly hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Recently, there has been increasing interest in adding molecularly targeted agents to standard induction chemotherapy regimens. For example, AML patients with a mutation in FLT3 often have a FLT3 inhibitor, such as mitostorin, added to their induction regimen. The addition of mitostorin has been shown to substantially improve overall survival. It is hoped that new targeted therapies would similarly prove valuable in patients with other types of mutations as well. Isocitrate dehydrogenase 1, or IDH1, is a metabolic enzyme that catalyzes the oxidative decarboxylation of isocitrate to alpha-ketoglutarate. Mutations in IDH1 occur in approximately 6% to 10% of patients with AML. The mutation in IDH1 alters the function of the enzyme so that it now catalyzes the neomorphic reduction of alpha-ketoglutarate to the oncometabolite D2-hydroxyglutarate, or 2-HG. Ivocidinib is an inhibitor of the mutant enzyme and reverses the overproduction of 2-HG. Sigmund et al. previously reported a Phase I multicenter open-label dose escalation and dose expansion study, where ivocidinib was administered daily in continuous 28-day cycles to patients with relapsed or refractory AML who had mutations in IDH1. 
In 125 patients, the rate of complete remission, or CR, plus CR with partial hematologic recovery, or CRH, was 30.4%, with a median duration of remission of 8.2 months. In the present report, an additional cohort of 34 patients with newly diagnosed mutant IDH1 AML who were ineligible for standard chemotherapy were studied. All patients were treated with 500 mg of ivocidinib monotherapy daily and followed for toxicity and efficacy. The median age of the patient population was 76 years and a high proportion of patients had secondary AML. As of the data cutoff date of November 2, 2018, 21% of patients were still on treatment and 79% had discontinued the drug. Of the latter patients, 38% discontinued due to disease progression, 15% due to an adverse event, 9% because of a stem cell transplant, 12% because of withdrawal of consent, 3% due to death, and 3% due to investigator decision. All 34 patients developed a treatment-emergent adverse event more than or equal to grade 3, diarrhea, fatigue, nausea, decreased appetite, leukocytosis, anemia, peripheral edema, and thrombocytopenia were reported in more than 25% of patients. In addition, serious QT prolongation was observed in 6% of patients. Also, 18% of patients developed a differentiation syndrome characterized by leukocytosis, but did not require discontinuation of the drug. All patients had significant reductions in the levels of 2-HG, the circulating oncometabolite associated with mutations in the IDH1 gene. The rate of CR plus CRH in these patients was 42.4%. CR rate was 30.3%. Median duration of remissions in responding patients was not reached, although the majority of patients remained in remission at one year. With a median follow-up of 23.5 months, median overall survival was 12.6 months. Out of 21 patients who were transfusion-dependent at baseline, 9 became transfusion-independent. IDH1 mutation clearance was seen in 9 out of 14 patients achieving CR or CRH. The authors concluded that based on the ease of administration, favorable toxicity profile, and lack of myelosuppression, ivocidinib is an excellent choice for patients who cannot tolerate high-dose chemotherapy. Further, ivocidinib is likely to be a good potential combination partner with other targeted drugs in AML. Several additional studies are planned or underway to further evaluate ivocidinib in a variety of combinations in patients with newly diagnosed AML. In our final topic of discussion, we explore intriguing outcomes from the blood article entitled Achieving Complete Remission in CLL Patients Treated with Ibrutinib, Clinical Significance and Predictive Factors by Strati et al. from the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. As described in the study, it is uncertain whether there is any correlation between the depth of remission and clinical outcomes in CLL patients treated with ibrutinib. Specifically, it is known that minimal residual disease eradication is very rarely achieved with the use of single-agent ibrutinib.
the authors prospectively studied 208 patients with previously untreated or relapsed refractory CLL in a phase 2 trial that randomized patients to ibrutinib alone or in combination with rituximab. The overall response rate was 99% with a complete response in 24% of patients and a partial response of 75% of patients after a median observation time of 10 months. However, only 3% of patients became negative for minimal residual disease, or MRD. Baseline characteristics of the 47 patients who achieved CR were compared to those of 145 who achieved only a partial remission, or PR, and the two groups were indistinguishable based on these parameters. 71 out of 208 patients have discontinued treatment after a median treatment duration of 12 months, with toxicity being the most common cause. After a median follow-up of four years, median progression-free survival, PFS, for all 208 patients was not reached and only 13% of patients had progressed and or died. Using univariate analysis, the only three factors significantly associated with a longer PFS were absence of a complex karyotype, absence of deletion 17P or TP53 mutation, and achievement of CR. The significance of CR was maintained after adjusting for deletion 17P and TP53 status. The authors note that this is the first study demonstrating that achievement of CR is a desirable endpoint for CLL patients treated with ibrutinib. In this study, none of the patient's baseline characteristics, including traditional prognostic factors, were associated with achievement of CR. Overall, the authors emphasize the importance of achieving a CR and suggest that this should be evaluated in other therapeutic studies employing ibrutinib as part of the therapeutic regimen. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Blood Podcast series is made possible in part by support from Servier Pharmaceuticals.